Hello. Hi. <laughs> like you immediately come out of the gate annoyed at that Zoom lady. I am. Uh, I'm just annoyed at her. It's fine. I'll <laughs> learn to embrace her. Yeah. Um, well, welcome back to the Weirdest Thing podcast. I, I need to talk. The Weirdest Thing podcast. The Weirdest Thing podcast. Uh, my name is Amelia Ampuero. I'm Scotty Milder. And We're your hosts. We are your hosts. And uh, just quick little announcement. Next week is going to be another week off for us because we actually have another project that we're working on that yeah, pretty cool. I don't know if you want to talk about it or if it's like on the DL right now. but um, No, but I figure we'll just, I can bring it up later for any local folks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, if you're listening to us, not from Albuquerque. It doesn't matter to you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't get to be part of our cool project club, but we'll be sure to mention it later on as we get closer. Yeah. But we are here this week and uh, I believe you are starting. So. Yes. Yes. Oh, hold on. My file is like at the very end of the story. <laughs> so let me. <laughs> okay. Again, no cold open for this. And I'm going to be talking about, uh, we actually have a bit of a theme for this episode, right? A little bit, I think. A little bit of a theme. Um, I'm going to be talking about America's favorite pastime, eminent domain. <laughs> uh, and this is the story of the Battle of Chavez Ravine. Sources for this are Wikipedia, an article from NPR titled The Battle Over Chavez Ravine, uh, an article from LAist called The Ugly Violent Clearing of Chavez Ravine before Ooh. it was home to the Dodgers by Janice Yamoka, an article from medium.com titled the battle for Chavez Ravine building Dodger stadium by Andrew Martin and another article titled black Friday, May 9th evictions versus Mexican heritage day at Dodger stadium by Melissa Arichiga and our, I'm sorry, a YouTube video from the LA times called why the Dodgers are haunted by Chavez Ravine mm. an article from the Smithsonian titled the complicated relationship between Latinos and the LA Dodgers by Priscilla Leiva, an article from LA Dodger Talk, The Battle of Chavez Ravine by someone called Only Bear. <laughs> I think it's like a blog. Yeah. Um, well, shout out to Bear. <laughs> shout out to Bear for the yeah. info. And uh, some more information from imaginesports.com, an article titled Why Did the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants Move to California? All right, so let's get cracking. Okay. Um, on May 28th, 1957, uh, National League baseball owners vote unanimously to say goodbye to both the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants mm -hmm. and let them move to California. Uh, the, it's decided that the Dodgers will move to LA, the Giants will move to San Francisco, and the deal is a package deal, meaning that either they both go or no one goes. Right. The Dodgers were a beloved team and really well supported, though not always the best team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um but New Yorkers love them. They love them. I yeah. guess sentiment was not the same for the Giants. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. I, mean, I think they were like, yeah, bye. There's definitely like a legend that remains around the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I feel like New York has eight teams mm -hmm. and it felt like the Dodgers were really loved. Everybody was kind of like, eh, whatever about the Giants. And people hated the Yankees. And people still hate the Yankees, unless you're a Yankees fan. 
Uh, okay. But yeah, no, the Dodgers were the Brooklyn Bombers. They were like one of those beloved kind of East Coast yeah. teams. I am also a Brooklyn Bomber, uh, as that is my <laughs> birthplace. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So they're this beloved team, super well supported, maybe not always the best team, but everybody loves them. And they actually broke the color barrier when they signed Jackie Robinson in 1947. Yep. And they ended up winning a World Series in 1954. Five. Mm-hmm. Um, Walter O'Malley was a real estate investor and a lawyer. And like, depending on who you talk to, he was either like the luckiest bastard, a visionary, or a big old meanie. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyways, <laughs> O'Malley was appointed attorney for the Dodgers. And then he obtained a minority ownership interest in 1944. And he would then go on to purchase 25% of the team along with Branch Rickey, who was the one who would sign Jackie Robinson mm-hmm. uh, and John L. Smith, who was the president of Pfizer Chemical, and the heirs of Stephen McCreever took the remaining quarter. McCreever had owned 50% of the team with his brother Ed, which they bought from Henry Medicus, Medicus in 1912. Well, I think like a it's whole- There's a whole shit ton of history about the Dodgers and the ownership, and I'm not Mm going to get into it because I I don't care. So, but just so that you have some context for who O'Malley is. Uh, So in the late 1940s, O'Malley starts trying to drum up interest for a new field because uh, the Dodgers original field, Ebbets field was starting to like look a little ratty. Mm -hmm. So he's like, Hey, wouldn't it be super cool if we had a new field and the team designs a new 55,000 seat stadium, which will be located in Brooklyn and everybody's like super pumped about it. Yeah. Everybody's pumped about it, except for this guy called Robert Moses, who sounds like a fucking pill. I mean, just (laughs) like from everything that I've read about him. So Moses isn't um, an elected official, but he wields a crazy amount of power because he's basically the one deciding where urban planning dollars goes. Mm -hmm. Urban urban planning dollars go. Um, Mm -hmm. And he like poo-poos the idea of a big ass stadium in Brooklyn. He's like, I don't want to do a big stadium in Brooklyn. Moses just decided to become the most hated man in New York. Probably. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, so he's, he's considered the father of the suburbs. And one of the reasons for that is because he favored roads over public transportation. Okay. So when you think of like, you know, suburban sprawl and stuff and like cities that aren't walkable and like it's kind of like Moses who was like, so, no, what if everybody drives everywhere? So we can also blame him in part for uh the lead crisis that you 100%. Yeah. Um yeah, thanks looking, Robert Moses. Thanks Dick. This is hilarious. I've probably written public in here a couple of times and I'm hitting my first typo where I wrote pubic. <laughs> The public. Um, so yeah, so he 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 like doesn't want to have like buses and trains and stuff. He's like, no, everybody should be driving. And his main reason for, like I said, poo-pooing the idea of the stadium for the Dodgers in Brooklyn is because he's like, it'll cause traffic jams. Mm-hmm. So he wanted the new stadium to be built in flushing meadows in Queens, mm-hmm. where like new shiny, like shiny new parkways were already being built. So he was just like, Oh my god, like people on the road constantly stuck in their cars like oh <laughs> it's you know. heaven yeah <laughs> oh god <laughs> God, what a dick. And so at this point, when Moses is like, no, O'Malley is like, well, fine then. And like literally took his team and went home. Yeah. Okay. So 
that gives you some context for what's going on with the Dodgers. And now we're going to like time warp back to Los Angeles in the 1830s, which is okay. where we always end up. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So <laughs> just a little bit North of what was at the time downtown, although I'm sure it's still downtown LA. I'm sure it's, still, yeah. I don't know. Um, but downtown Los Angeles, there's this shallow L shaped Canyon, mm-hmm. a man named Julian Chavez, who was born in Abiquiu, New Mexico. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So this man named Julian Chavez from Abiquiu, New Mexico, moved to California in the 1830s. And Chavez would go on to be a rancher and a landowner. And he actually held several elected like official positions. He was the assistant mayor. Uh, He was judge of waters, judge of the plains. And he was also a member of the first Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. Okay. So he purchases a big old crap ton of land of this like narrow long valley in 1844. No records exist of like what Chavez was doing with the land for those first few years. Like Mm -hmm. I I think he just kind of like had it and the early history of what he did do. Once you start to get into the recorded history of it, it's still pretty vague, but it is known that during the smallpox epidemics of the 1850s and 1880s, Chavez Canyon held a pest house, um, which was like a space that would care for Chinese Americans and Mexican Americans who were suffering from smallpox. Mm -hmm. So already like, Mexican-Americans are starting to have a little bit of stake in that land and in that area, but it also had like a robust Jewish population. Right. It was home to the first Jewish site, which is for anybody who doesn't know, because I didn't, that's a Jewish cemetery. Mm -hmm. And that was built in 1855. And it was owned by the Hebrew Benevolent Society of Los Angeles, which was also Los Angeles's first charity. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. The society bought three acres of land from the city for $1. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess that's the way you could do it. And like way back when. Well, and I think like, I know that there are, you'll hear in the nonprofit world where nonprofits will be like, it's either buy the land or let us quote unquote, rent the land for a hundred years for a dollar. Yeah. It's it's like a way of someone to do a charitable donation kind of. It's something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) Um, So by the early 1900s, Chavez Ravine had become this like semi-rural Mexican-American community. The area developed into three neighborhoods, and those were Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. Mm -hmm. The whole area, though somewhat like undeveloped, but it like it had a grocery store, it had a church, they built an elementary school, uh, which was called Palo Verde Elementary. Um, And many residents owned their homes and like grew their own food, people had goats and chickens, like it was, it was a community, Mm -hmm. you know, it was rural, it wasn't like super modern and super urban. But they were like, they were doing their thing, you know, Mm -hmm. there's also a brick factory nearby that was spewing pollution and dust into the air. On August 20th, 1926, Uh, the LA city council voted to zone the area around Chavez ravine for residential use, which meant that the brick factory, like got the boot by the 1940s. Chavez Ravine and its three neighborhoods are like this poor but tight-knit community. Like I said, they they were doing their thing yeah. um, and living their lives. And it wasn't luxurious, but, you know, it was a 
thriving little community. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Mexican-Americans at this time are facing housing discrimination. So there's not like a ton of housing options for right. them. Around this time in the 1940s, Los Angeles starts to sort of like lick its chops over what could be done with the Chavez Ravine land if it if it weren't for those pesky Mexican-Americans. Mm-hmm. So the city starts to push this narrative that Chavez Ravine is a blight, that it's a slum. It's this, mm. you know, it's, it's urban decay. Okay. There is an implied idea of uncleanliness and disease that goes along with this language. Yeah. So it's not just like, oh, like those people are like living a poor life over there. It's like, oh, and there's probably disease and it's dirty and and yeah. which is something that would come up a lot with Mexican Americans. The um the education case, like the desegregation case in California that had to do with Mexican children being integrated into white schools, like that was a big thing. Right. An argument against it was that Mexicans were were dirty, which is just like Jesus Christ, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. fucking hell. Okay, so the housing authority of the city of Los Angeles decides that Chavez Ravine would make the perfect spot for public housing, and mm-hmm. they just so happen to have funding from the Housing Act of 1949. Plans start being made for something called Elysian. Is that the way you say it? Elysian. I think it's Elysian. Elysian Park Heights, uh, and that's a public housing development that was designed by Robert Alexander and Richard Nutra, who we mentioned, or I mentioned Richard Nutra. He designed other public housing projects with Hollywood's architect to the stars, Paul Williams. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if his name sounds familiar, that could be why, Uh, or maybe you know a lot about public housing. I don't know. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know your life. (laughs) Okay. In 1951, the LA Housing Authority starts to acquire the land in Chavez Ravine via, quote, voluntary purchase or just straight up eminent domain. Mm-hmm. The residents of Chavez Ravine, many of whom only speak Spanish, only learn of the public housing plan via one letter. And there's no meeting. There's no vote. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just a letter that's like, we're taking your house to, you know, do this. And they're told that it's for the greater good of public housing. Of course. Mm -hmm. The residents are also told that they will be able to return to live in the public housing once it's built. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk. I feel skeptical about this, but yeah. So let's talk a little bit about eminent domain. Uh, Scotty, I'm sure you're a smart guy. I'm sure you know what it is, but Mm -hmm. in case anybody doesn't, eminent domain is the power of state, provincial, or national government to take private property for public use. Um, That's going to be an important distinction here. So the Chavez Ravine residents are offered money for their land, or they're just straight up kicked off using eminent domain. Yeah. Those that were given money were paid well below market value and it was a tiered buyout scheme, meaning that they would come to you with an initial offer. And if you were like, no, we're going to wait. Then from that point on the money that they would offer, you would just lower and lower and lower. It was done specifically to create panic. Yeah, I think that is something that happens a lot with them in the domain cases. And I know this was like a controversy recently because the Trump assholes were trying to do this with a bunch of ranchers and stuff along the border to build his stupid border wall. To build a stupid border wall. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just like, it's the weirdest 
thing to me that you can own something. And granted here in the United States, the idea of ownership of land is very, is like a complicated and tainted issue, Mm -hmm. but it is insane to me that you could own something outright. And then the government could be like, well, we want it. Yeah. So we're going to offer you like the the government could come and like, be like, well, we want your car, Amelia. So we're going to pay you $500. And I'm like, no, there's no way that I'm not going to do that. And they're like, okay, 250. And then eventually could just be like, we're taking your car. Yeah. It's insanity to me. So let's talk a little bit about public housing. Public housing is a housing tenure where property is owned by a government authority. Public housing has been an idea that has existed within the world for a really long time. But this was surprising to me. The first public housing in the U.S. was Techwood Homes in Atlanta in 1935. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected that. No, that seems very late to me. And I, I mean, tried. I guess in a way it makes sense if if you go back to when I was talking about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, like a lot of the push for that was like with the WPA and during mm-hmm. the depression. So that, that would have been a boom for public housing, but it seems weird that they didn't have anything. Well, yeah. And I'm trying to figure out where like the tenements in New York and stuff fit into that like if those were privately owned probably it's probably like slumlords and stuff. i th- and i think that is what it is but yeah. it was a little unclear unless i wanted to dive into the like you know forever long wikipedia articles about right. it which i just i didn't have time yeah. um so public housing is always framed as slum clearance in order mm-hmm. to alter neighborhoods considered like i mentioned before sources of disease it's yeah. always like we need to clean this up we need to clean this up it was also used to combat the tent cities that started popping up during and after the Great Depression. Right. And originally, public housing was populated more by working and middle class white folks, which was also surprising to me, but I guess not really when we think about the time. Yeah. Yeah. Public housing can be low rise communities, which I think is a little more common the more west you go. Yeah. Or the large multi story towers like Cabrini Green uh, and that kind of stuff that you see in Chicago. What we think of when we say the projects, quote unquote. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. By the 1970s, public housing tenants become more low income and like more melanated. Mm. Like they, you know, they become poor people of color. Um, Were the towers ever any good? Like, I know that like low rise, these are like apartments and and like, you know, stuff like that, that they can be, you know, sketchy and stuff because it is mostly low income stuff and that mm-hmm. becomes an environment for things. But I have never heard a story of any tower being like, it was great. It was wonderful. Everybody I mean, loved living there. It's, it's a, this is a whole other sidebar we could go yeah. down. But like, I mean, I think there's a lot. I've read a lot of stuff just about like the... Whether it's public housing, whether it's luxury apartments, whether it's whatever, it's like that high density urban living stuff is like, there's a lot of research that that's just not good for like the human soul. kind Right. Right. And so if you take poverty and like add that on top of this, like high density, everyone's living on top of each other thing. Mm -hmm. It's just like, yeah, it seems like a recipe for not great outcomes. Yeah. And I know that my my understanding of public 
public housing is that the money goes into the building of the structures with almost none sticking around for the upkeep of the structures. So you have these like beautiful towers that are built and when you move in, everything's fine. But then like the light bulbs and they, it's always like a compound of like 22 towers and there's like one maintenance person for all 22. Right. Um, so like, well, you know, cause we underfund everything when it comes to social service, right? This is true. So this is true. Yeah. yeah. So even though they like remain owned by the government, like <laughs> there's no money being put into the upkeep right. of these spaces. So Los Angeles, so now we're in Los Angeles again, and it's 1953 mm-hmm. and conservative Norris Polson is elected mayor of Los Angeles. Polson hated public housing. And like, honestly, Mm -hmm. he probably hated like brown folks too, but um, he hated public housing. He thought it was un-American. The previous mayor of LA, whose name I didn't write down, but he, like that mayor had supported public housing. Mm -hmm. So when they started talking about the Chavez Ravine thing, it was like public housing, public housing. And then Norris Polson got elected and he was like, fuck those communists. Yeah. Poor people. (laughs) No more public housing. Paulson with the support of a group called citizens against socialist housing. Uh, you want to, you want to take a crack at what the acronym for that? What is social casa cash? Oh, cash. Oh, housing. Yeah. Yeah. That feels like a little too on the nose. That feels like mustache twirling. Yeah. It doesn't villainy. That seems like Daniel Day Lewis's character in There Will Be Blood. (laughs) My child. Um, (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, Paulson with the support of Citizens Against Social Housing or Cash, and like in an effort to like fan the flames of anti communism, he vows to kill public housing projects. Yeah. He also promised to fire city employees who were communists or refused to answer questions about their political activities. So he's part of the whole McCarthy bullshit. Yeah. He sounds like he's way fun at parties. Yeah. It's <laughs> like listening in. What have you been doing with who? <laughs> um, okay. So interestingly, Chavez Ravine residents looked to Paulson because they thought he'd help them keep their homes and land since he opposed public housing. Um, Spoiler alert, Polson didn't give a shit about what happened to the residents of Chavez Ravine. He just Mm -hmm. didn't want them to have public housing. Yeah. So Polson goes on to be instrumental in bringing the Dodgers to LA and he starts courting Walter O'Malley and urging him, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring them here. Bring them here. Since he hates public housing because it's communist, he drives down support of, how did you say it was called? Elysian? Elysian, I think. Okay. Elysian Park Heights. And he gets the project killed before it ever even begins. Like they've created the plans, but it it dies. Yeah. I don't know if I had it in here. I may have not added it, but Elysian Park Heights was supposed to be, I think like 163 low rise homes and then 22, 13 story towers. Okay. So- Polson gets the, the project killed and Chavez Ravine, because people have started to move out, um, it sits mm-hmm. mostly empty and unused except for a couple of holdouts. The residents of Chavez Ravine are under the impression that Polson and O'Malley are going to bring the Dodgers to LA to play at Wrigley Field, which was their minor league team's stadium. Yeah. 
Um, yes. That, that's an, I wonder, because obviously Wrigley Field is associated with Chicago and the Cubs, but I wonder if like they were a minor league affiliate of the Cubs or something. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But it, the, like Chavez Ravine residents think when they start hearing all this stuff about the Dodgers, that they're going to come, they're going to revamp Wrigley Field mm-hmm. and that's where they'll play. Which makes would have made the most sense. Yeah. So the city of L.A. buys the Chavez Ravine land back from the Federal Housing Authority at obviously a drastically reduced price with the stipulation that the city will use the land only for public use. In case it's not clear, a professional baseball stadium is not public use. Okay. Yeah. So then we get to what's called the baseball referendum. And this is promoted by a group called... This is so stupid. Promoted by a group called the Taxpayers Committee for Yes on Baseball. Um, <laughs> that sounds that's super. Like the, that's just so 1950s. Like <laughs> It's so 1950s. And I just can imagine that they were like, Taxpayers Committee for Baseball. And they were like, but is it yes baseball? Is it no on baseball? What do we feel about the baseball? And then somebody was like, we'll put a yes in there. So everybody's yeah. clear well, I'm just on our position on, imagining on baseball. a little like mascot logo of a smiling baseball with like a thumbs up. <laughs> thumbs up. Yeah. He's got like a hot dog in the other hand. <laughs> yeah. God. Oh, okay. Um, so the referendum gets approved by LA voters on June 3rd, 1958. Okay. So what's in this referendum? It's mm-hmm. a deal that promised 352 acres of land in Chavez Ravine to the Dodgers and Walter O'Malley in exchange for land around the existing minor league park, which is Wrigley Field, to incentivize migration to LA. Let's Mm. be very clear here. They wanted to incentivize white people to move to LA because there were plenty of people who were already migrating to LA. It just wasn't the right kind of people. Right. So the deal basically was like, if we give you Chavez Ravine, then we'll get Wrigley Field and we can build, you know, like a Starbucks or whatever on there. It wasn't a Starbucks because it was in like 1958. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And originally the city of Los Angeles had offered a different plot of land to the Dodgers to use that had like, it it was nowhere near Chavez Ravine, Mm -hmm. but O'Malley had seen Chavez Ravine from the air from like his fucking robber baron hot air balloon or something. He had seen Chavez Ravine and was like, no, I want this land. Yeah. And so LA was like, okay, fine then take that land. In 1957, the LA City Council approves the transfer of Chavez Ravine land to the Dodgers. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so again, remember how the land was supposed to be used for like public, public use. use. Yeah. Just a little like disclaimer here. Dodger Stadium was and remains today a privately owned for-profit stadium. So well, and that's that's the weird thing with sports stadiums in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it gets to that whole like capitalism for the poor socialism for the rich thing yes because like yes major sports teams sports leagues are all private businesses but they're always getting tax breaks and stuff Mm -hmm. from city governments uh who have this idea that like well if we put a big knock down a bunch of buildings and put a big sports stadium here it's going to bring in revenue and blah right but a lot of it's just like super kickbacky and like yeah yeah. And I mean, it was a place where people lived, like people yeah. lived there. It wasn't like it was a plot, you know, it wasn't like some dirt lot. It Like people were there. Yeah. So that leads us to Black Friday, May 9th, 1959. Chavez Ravine 
once this like vibrant community is now a ghost town, mm-hmm. many families have moved out and their homes have been bulldozed. If you look at pictures from around that time when people were trying to kind of drum up support for letting the people who lived there, like letting them stay there, it looks like the aftermath of a tornado. Yeah. And it's because people would leave their homes and they would immediately come in and bulldoze them. So it's just like rubble. and like- Yeah. Yeah. By 1959, Manuel and Abrana Arechiga and their adult daughter, war widow Aurora Vargas, were some of the very last residents remaining in Chavez Ravine. On May 9th, 1959, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department arrives at the homes of the Arechigas and Vargas with bulldozers to evict the families. Mm-hmm. Deputies kick down the doors. Movers rush in to pack up and haul off their belongings. Vargas, who is 36 years old at this time, is carried out of her home by four deputies. Wow. Four sheriff's deputies physically pick this woman up. She's not a large woman. Mm-hmm. They pick her up and they drag her from the only home she's ever known. Vargas's children, along with news watchers all over the country who tuned in, see Vargas forcibly removed, manhandled, thrown in a cop car, and arrested for refusing to leave her residence at 1771 Malvina Avenue. Mm-hmm. Immediately after her removal, her home is bulldozed into the ground. Okay. Vargas's father, Manuel Arechiga, was the final Chavez Ravine holdout. He camped in a tent at the site of his demolished home for months. Wow. Like he's like on top of the rubble of his home, just like trying to fucking stop this. The immediate response to this Black Friday was support from the community for the Arechigas and Vargas, but that soon waned when the news started reporting that the families, Arechiga and Vargas, hadn't actually lost their homes because they, in fact, owned 12 rental homes around Los Angeles. They were basically saying, like, these aren't some poor little families that had mm-hmm. been put out on the street by urban development. Like, they were landlords. They had plenty of other places to go. This isn't a sad story. The problem is, is that it wasn't true. The 12 other homes were houses that belonged to other family members and other adult children of the Arechigas. And it was a blatant misrepresentation to lower support for for what had happened to them. Yeah. Just like straight up lie. Yeah, it was a straight. Yeah. Manuel Arechiga finally, like eventually gave up. He was given $10,500 for his home. The California Court of Appeals denied the Arechigas the interest on the amount that they were due, even though they were entitled to it, according to California's constitution. So just like a final kick in the pants. Yeah. It's all just like, fuck you, get out, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. All of the buildings in Chavez Ravine were bulldozed and concrete was poured to cover what had once been the vibrant community. Again, just a reminder, the residents of Chavez Ravine were told, like, you will be able to come back to move into public housing. Mm -hmm. And then they built Dodger Stadium on top of it. Yeah. Dodger Stadium opened on April 10th, 1962, and it sits upon the bulldozed remains of the church, elementary school, and countless homes. Mm-hmm. The 56,000-seat stadium is the third oldest baseball stadium in the country after Fenway Park in Boston and Wrigley Field in Chicago. Mm-hmm. From the LA Times YouTube video, this is a quote from Richard Montoya. He's a filmmaker and playwright, and he says, usually when a city is expanding and things like eminent domain are used, 99 
99.9% of the time, poor people are going to pay. That bitterness is easily overlaid and transferred over to the Dodgers, fair or unfair. For a long time, there were, and I think actually it's still to this day, this remains true. There are members of the Mexican-American community in LA who are like holding grudges against the Dodgers. Yeah. Because they remember that they were removed from their homes and that they were promised better housing that never materialized, you know, and all, all for the sake of America's favorite pastime. Yeah. Mexican-Americans who worked for the city in public utilities like water and sewage took time, like quote unquote, time off from their job so that they would not have to work on building Dodger Stadium. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting thing in the YouTube video. They're talking to a man and he's talking about his father who was working in water and sewage. And he, and you know, they, they had been kicked out of Chavez Ravine and the father was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And I'm going to go in there and I'm going to quit. And his boss, who, from what I understand was a white guy was like, please don't do this. I don't want you to lose your job over this. Take your sick leave. Like Mm -hmm. how much sick leave do you have? And you know, a lot of these Mexican American workers had like eight months of sick leave stored up. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, the boss was like, take your eight months. And when you come back, I'll put you on another project. But I just don't want you to lose your job. So a lot of them, that was their way of like protesting so that they would not have to like be party to building the stadium. Yeah. Anti-Dodger sentiments stuck around. What started to turn the tables was when the Dodgers brought Fernando Valenzuela, a Mexican born left-handed pitcher onto the roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember many, him. Mm-hmm, many. Yeah. I think the, the, I, I was seeing stuff that was like Fernando mania and all mm-hmm. this stuff. I was like, all right. Many Mexican Americans finally stepped foot into Dodger stadium just to see Valenzuela play. Yeah. Dodger stadium by this point has probably had millions of millions of people go through its, its doors. It's hosted acts like the Beatles and Elton John in 2020, the stadium became LA's largest COVID testing and later vaccination spot. The Mm -hmm. stadium could test up to 6,000 people daily. Yeah. And I feel like Sean Penn had something to do with that. I I think you're right. I don't remember. Like that details. he was like, hey, let's do this thing. And like, let's, you know, like we've yeah, got a big he, empty he, baseball he, stadium. Yeah, he was he was somehow involved. I don't I remember reading the story, but I don't remember exactly what his what his yeah. role was. Yeah. Yeah. But I like, OK, I guess. Thank you, Sean Penn. Um, he's, I think, problematic in other words. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. Dodger Stadium holds a Mexican Heritage Day every year, but for many Mexican Americans, the honor of celebrating their Mexican heritage costs an entire day's pay or more. So mm. a lot of them can't actually go celebrate Mexican Heritage Day. Yeah. To this day, Los Desterados, which means the uprooted, they're a group of people who either lived in or have familial ties to Chavez Ravine, regularly meet right outside Dodger Stadium's gates to keep the memory alive of the community Dodger Stadium was built on. And that is the story of the Battle of Chavez Ravine and Dodger Stadium. Yeah, I'd heard a little bit about that, but I didn't know yeah. uh, just how blatant it was. I mean, they just yeah. just stole it, like lied yeah, and they, then stole it. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. There's they, really no way around that. Yeah. And I've, I've been to Dodger Stadium and like, it's not the best place. I mean, this obviously this is the least important part of this, but it's like not the best place for a baseball stadium. Like it's kind of hard to get to, like mm-hmm. there's not a lot of roads there. It like, it just would have made much more sense to put it more out of the city or up in the Valley or something like that, you know? Um, yep. But, but like I said, O'Malley, you know, probably smoking like, a cigar. This looks pretty. Yeah. yeah. It was like, give me this land. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, of course, we'll, we'll post pictures, but the pictures of Aurora Vargas being taken from her home are, I mean, I don't want to say that they're shocking knowing what we know about law enforcement and people of color, but it's, I mean, it's, it's four men and they are hauling and like, I mean, her feet aren't even touching the ground. Like they are mm-hmm. hauling her and she is, she's fighting, you know, the whole way. And they just took her out of her home threw her in the back of a cop car and then bulldozed it. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's a shame. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's the story of the battle of Chavez Ravine. Okay, well, to follow on with your story, I've also got a baseball story. Mine's going to be somewhat more lighthearted than yours. Okay, Um, thank God. And this is just for full disclosure, like it was kind of my idea to do a baseball theme this week because it's Mm -hmm. like, it's might seem a little like it's a little off brand for me unless you know me but aside from like being into horror and heavy metal and the Loch Ness Monster and like, you know, UFOs and stuff like that. My other big passion is baseball. So, hey, and we are in the middle of the baseball season. Uh, the All-Star we are? Breaks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All-Star <laughs> break is coming up very shortly. So I'm actually planning to do, I think, three baseball stories over okay. the next few weeks. So this week, we're going to talk about baseball curses. Ooh, cool. Okay. Some of the famous baseball curses that have plagued teams throughout the last I don't know century century and a half so now there's a ton of baseball curses I'm not going to go through all of them real quick my sources for this are Wikipedia uh, an article from itgnext.com called the top 10 craziest baseball curses from sportscasting.com remembering Mike Piazza's incredible post 9-11 home run the Mets bobblehead curse lives from the New York Times (laughs) okay um, the Curse of the Bambino from BabeRuthCentral.com. Mm. Then What Bill Buckner Said 19 Days Before Game 6 of the 1986 World Series from Mental Floss. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. William, William Cianis in The Curse of the Billy Goat from Legacy.com. The Curse of Rocky Colavito from Last Word on Sports. Okay. 60 Years of the Curse of Rocky Colavito from SB Nation, countermanding the Colavito curse from the Hardball Times. Jesus. And 50 years later, the Cleveland Indians trade of Rocky Colavito still stinks from the <laughs> Cleveland Plain Dealer. <laughs> so yeah, this is kind of wow. cobbled together from a lot of different sources. And like I said, there's like a ton of baseball curse stories, but I'm just going to kind of go through some of the more famous ones. Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking the ball. Knocking those home runs over the wall. So the first one is kind of the most recent, and it's also, I think, the silliest of the curses. Okay. So this is uh, the New York Mets bobblehead curse. Ooh, Yeah, it started in 2002. So the bobbleheads, we all know what bobbleheads are. I don't need to explain bobbleheads to people, I don't think. Right. I mean, I know what they are. They're like little dolls with heads that bounce. The bobble, yeah. They bobble. (laughs) Um, Well, the New York Mets bobbleheads were started by a guy named Mark Gold. Mark Gold is the co-owner of Gold 
pure food products. So they're known for like, they're really well known for horseradish, uh, specifically horseradish that's like used during Passover seders. But they also have this tie to the Mets because they make the official ballpark mustard for the New York Mets. Um, Okay. So this uh, Mark Gold, he started this tradition in 2002 where they would make bobbleheads as like promotional giveaways uh, Mm -hmm. of the different Mets players. Mm -hmm. But unknowingly, he started a curse with this. Oh, no. Because what has happened is that every time a player is turned into a bobblehead, their career tanks. Oh, my God. (laughs) So this is, it started with Mike Piazza. If you guys don't know, Mike Piazza is very, very uh, famous kind of 1990s, early 2000s catcher, mainly known for his time with the Mets. Mm -hmm. He was the first Matt's player who was turned into a bobblehead when he started he was he like I said he was the catcher he's most known or, or kind of most remembered for two incidents mm-hmm. uh just a couple years before so the first was in 2000 during the subway series if you guys remember this is when the new york mets and the yankees yep. actually played the world series yep piazza had kind of a weird feud i guess you could say feud a rivalry with yankees pitcher roger clemens um, okay. Roger Clemens is like famously an asshole. Okay. Like fighting with people. He's really famous for beating batters, um, oh. like intentionally hitting batters with the ball. So during this 2000 Subway series, earlier in that season, Piazza had been hit by a fastball from Roger Clemens, got hit in the head mm-hmm. and actually suffered a concussion. And of course, so the Mets fans were just like screaming for Roger Clemens's head. Mm. Um, he claimed that he didn't do it on purpose. But I mean, like, if you have a history he's, of doing he's it, got then, a like, reputation. either you suck or... To be fair to him, like, he's known for hitting batters, but, like, usually when a pitcher intentionally hits a batter, they don't go for the head because, I mean, you literally could kill someone with that. Yeah. So they'll get him in the side, they'll get him in the shoulder or something like that. Um, but this time he got him in the head, gave him a concussion. <gasps> so then they faced off against each other again during this 2000 Subway series. Mm-hmm. Clemens threw a pitch and it fouled off of Mike Piazza's bat. The bat shattered and the barrel of the bat like flew at Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens caught the barrel of the bat and then threw it at Mike Piazza. <laughs> <laughs> he was running for first base because <laughs> he didn't realize it was a foul at first. <laughs> so you broke uh, his bat. Yeah. Yeah. And like when you see, like, it's not uncommon to have broken bats in baseball, but okay. like this bat shattered like fucking glass. Like, if you watch, I watched the YouTube of it before uh-huh. this, and it just like explodes like there is a fucking dynamite charge inside of it. And it is crazy. Like, you know, the, the barrel of the bat comes flying at Roger Clemens. He catches it and then immediately throws it at Mike Piazza. Jesus. <laughs> um, and then, of course, Piazza, like, stopped running and, like, kind of stalked out towards the mound. And, you know, they do the whole face-off thing. And then the bench is clear. It ended up not turning into a brawl. But it was one of those, like, almost brawls. Mm-hmm. Clemens always claimed he didn't mean to throw the bat at Piazza because he said he thought he caught the ball and was trying to throw him out at first base. Because a ball and a shard of bat feels <laughs> right. so similar. I mean, I'll just like, I'll let you guys decide. <laughs> so, and even, so, I'm sorry, I'm not a baseball player, but it's my understanding that like if you're throwing the ball to get a, a runner out, you're throwing it to the basement. It's not like tag, right? <laughs> Where you can be like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he missed him by like a foot or something, and he wasn't close to the base. 
What he wasn't throwing okay. the bat at the base. He was throwing it no. at the this guy's No, this guy has anger management issues. Yeah. Like I said, this is kind of Roger Clemens' thing. Okay. <laughs> so. Okay. Okay. The other thing that Piazza was famous for was the following year. It was a, a little more heartwarming story. So this was on September 21st, 2001. This is mm. the Mets' first game back after 9-11. This is ten, like 10 days ten after? 10 days after. Um, well, I th- I think it's their it was their first game back in New York. I think they had gone to play the Pirates in a series in Pittsburgh. Okay, that had gotten postponed, like pushed back because of the right. attacks. But then they went ahead and did this series, and then they came back to play the Braves. Okay, and Mike Piazza's remembered from a game winning eighth inning home run against the Braves that night. Okay, here's his quote about it. He says, "I'm just so happy I gave the people something to cheer." There was a lot of emotion. It was just a surreal sort of energy out there. And I'm just proud to be a part of it tonight. And so it was kind of seen as this like cathartic moment for New Yorkers. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, then the following year, they made a bobblehead out of him. Okay. That year that the bobblehead was released, 2002, he had hit 33 home runs, which is pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Had 98 RBIs, which is also pretty damn good. What's an Follow- RBI? Run batted in. So that okay. means like... If you have a runner on base and you hit like a double and the other runner is able to score, that's an RBI. Okay. Okay. So he had hit 33 home runs that year, had 98 RBIs. The following year after the bobblehead, uh, he only hit 11 home runs. So precipitous drop, like basically one third the number of home runs. And then he immediately in 2004 suffered like knee trouble, um, which is common for catchers Mm because you're crouching behind the base. So they tried to move him over to first base and apparently he just like really sucked at first base. Mm-hmm. Um, it just didn't work out. He ended up leaving the Mets in 2005, had a little bit of a rebound to his career, but retired in 2006. Okay. So he was the first who was afflicted by the bobblehead curse. Another famous bobblehead curse recipient was pitcher Pedro Martinez. Okay. Uh, I was in Boston when this happened. Pedro Martinez was mainly known for helping the Red Sox win the 2004 World Series. Okay. And I can say like, in Boston that year, Pedro was beloved. Mm-hmm. Like he was like the second coming of Jesus. Okay. Like, <laughs> he he ended that season with a league leaning 2.26 ERA, which means earned run average. So like okay. the lower ERA, the better. Okay. Um, and like anything kind of under four is considered a really good ERA. He had a 2.26 ERA. And then at the end of that year, you know, helped them win the World Series. He became a free agent and immediately turned around and signed a four-year, $53 million contract with the Mets. And I remember Boston had just a collective, like, shit fit about it. Right, 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 right. But, you know, he he went after the money, which, you know, they do. Baseball players do. You can't can't blame him. Uh, Went to the Mets, got a bobblehead. His 2005 season with the Mets was pretty good. But then in 2006, just got hit with injuries. His oh. ERA rose, topped out at 7.10 <gasps> off of like out of like 30 some games, mm-hmm. which like to go from 2.26 ERA to 7.10 is just like it's pretty fucking bad. Yeah. Um, he ended up needing surgery on a torn muscle in his calf and then also mm. for a torn rotator cuff, which is very common injury with pitchers mm-hmm. um, that sidelined him for most of 2007. He stayed with the Mets for a while, but never was the star for the Mets that he was for the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Ended up joining the Philadelphia Phillies in 2009, then retired in 2011. 
Wow. So other players who are affected by the curse, I'm just going to go quickly through the list, where people like relief pitcher John Franco, shortstop Kazuo Matsui, left fielder Jason Bay, catcher Paul Laduca. And then I think the most interesting story was pitcher Francisco Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. So he had signed a three-year $37 million contract and got his bobblehead in 2009. Then in 2010, was injured and arrested after he tried to beat up his girlfriend's father. Wow. Yeah. He ended up being suspended for the assault and then put on the disqualified list. Um, They ended up trading him off to the Brewers, uh, I think, that season. So Mark Gold, who created the bobbleheads, kind of ditched the idea in 2015. He instead started making garden gnomes out of the players. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And so here's his quote. He says, we finally decided to break the curse of the bobblehead. We tried Matsui, K-Rod, who's Frankie Rodriguez, Jason Mm -hmm. Bay, Ike Davis, all bad news. Keith and then Doc, Franco, Santana, even Piazza did not work. We went to Granderson last year and he had the worst year of his career. So... So even this Mark Gold guy is like, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry for bobblehead <laughs> And like, it's just such a Mets story to me because like the Mets, you know, it's like the Yankees, and I'm going to get to the Yankees here in my next story, but mm-hmm. uh, they're like the powerhouse New York team. And the Mets have, you know, kind of going back to what you're talking about with like the Brooklyn Dodgers and stuff, like all the other New York teams are sort of the also rans. So like the Mets have always kind of been like the underdog New York team that's just always plagued by like stupid shit like this. Yeah. So the next curse, this is probably the most famous baseball curse. Okay. This is the curse of the Bambino. Mm. Uh, so this is the curse that has af- or had afflicted the Boston Red Sox. So the curse started supposedly in 1914 when Babe Ruth's contract with the Baltimore Orioles was sold to the Red Sox. They brought him on as a pitcher. And Babe Ruth is, of course, or was, of course, known as the Bambino. Mm-hmm. He became like he was very successful with the Red Sox. He became one of the most successful left-handed pitchers of the time. He won 65 games and helped the Red Sox win three World Series between 1914 and 1919. Babe what's Ruth in- was a pitcher. What's interesting about okay. Babe Ruth? Okay. I'm glad I was about to mention this. Is like it is extremely rare mm-hmm. for a pitcher to also become like known as a batting prodigy. Yeah. Like usually if you can pitch, you can't bat, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just, and it's cause they're different skill sets. And like, right. if you're a pitcher, you don't train to be a batter and particularly okay. in the American league pitchers don't bat. You know, we have the designated hitter rule. Oh, right, right, right. League. Yeah. Okay. So this was just really weird. <laughs> and this is kind of why like, like Babe Ruth is still considered one of the greatest baseball players of all time, because it's like, he could pitch, he could bat, he could stay out carousing, getting drunk the night before show up and like hit a bunch of home runs. Like that was just his thing. It's just sturdy. He's just, <laughs> just, just sturdy, sturdy man. <laughs> 
Um, looked like a real beef eater. Yeah, I think he was. <laughs> I think he caught up with him. <laughs> I think it did too. Yeah. Do you know what was it? His name wasn't actually Babe Ruth. No, I never remember what his real name was. Okay. Like I'm, I'm sort of like one of those non-Yankees Red Sox fans who's resentful of the Babe Ruth legacy because he played for two of my least favorite teams, mm. uh, being the Red mm-hmm. Sox and the Yankees. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so while he was really becoming this successful pitcher, he had started also establishing himself as a powerhouse hitter in the 1919 season he hit 29 home runs which at the time was the most any hitter had ever hit in like a single season Mm -hmm. but nevertheless red sox owner harry frazee decided to sell babe to the new york yankees or sell his contract i should say to the new york yankees in 1920 so the deal was for $100,000 in cash as well as a $300,000 loan there are a lot of like rumors about why he made this trade mm-hmm. most of which are probably not true so one that is probably not true but it's kind of part of the lore is that harry Frazee, he was also a broadway producer the story is that he sold babe ruth's contract because he needed funds to produce a play called no no nanette oh um, fucking no no nanette okay <laughs> yeah now this isn't true because okay. two things he was already a very successful broadway producer and when he produced no no nanette it was several years later Okay. There's really no link between the two. Okay. Another rumor is that he owed money to the former owner of the Red Sox, a guy named Joe Lannon, and needed to generate quick cash. I think what's the most likely is that he had decided to sell Ruth's contract in the middle of the season, at which point Babe was kind of in a slump. So it didn't seem like such a big loss. But by the time the deal was kind of done, Babe rebounded and hit his 29 home runs oh okay so but at that point it was kind of too late it was also known of course if you know anything about babe ruth he was a man of let's say large appetites so he's kind of known to be like difficult and like seen as kind of a liability off the field i think there were fears like moral panic fears around babe ruth kind of the stuff that like caught up with people like fatty arbuckle later you know so i think there was an element of like we just don't want the baggage that comes with him okay george herman ruth was his real name george i was i thought herman was in there somewhere george herman ruth jr bts yeah real time fact check so Ruth's contract was sold in 1920 at this point the red sox had won five world series including several in just the years kind of immediately previous Mm-hmm. The Yankees at this point had not won any World Series. Well, okay. after the sale between 1920 and today, the Yankees have appeared in, I think, almost 40 World Series. They've won <gasps> 27. After 1918, the Red Sox didn't win another World Series until 2004. So this is the second longest championship drought after the Chicago Cubs, which is coming up shortly. Okay. So just a little bit of like the sad story of the Red Sox. Uh, Mm -hmm. So like in the 1946 (laughs) World Series, they appeared, they were favored to beat the St. Louis Cardinals. Okay. It went to a seven game series. It was tied at the bottom of the eighth inning in the seventh game. Then center fielder Harry Walker hit a double to the short left center field. This allowed right fielder Enos Slaughter, who was already on first to actually 
run all the way home from first base. And like, mm. there were even like, I think the first base coach was, or the third base coach was even like signaling for him to stop at third base because they thought he was going to get thrown out, but he just powered through, managed to run in, score the winning run. And that was the wow. end of that the 1946 World Series. Wow. In 1948, they were tied for first in the American League, but then lost the pennant to the Cleveland Indians in a one-game playoff. Mm. Cleveland went on to win the World Series that year. More on that shortly. Okay. And then after a disastrous 1966 season, the Red Sox won the pennant in 1967, went on to the World Series again against the Cardinals. Like 1946, uh, it went to seven games, but they lost in the seventh game, seven to two. And then probably most famous is the Bill Buckner story. Okay. So 1986 World Series. They were in the series against the New York Mets. In game six, it was tied in the 10th inning. So they had gone into extra innings. Then at the top of the inning, uh, the Red Sox took a five to three lead. So it looked like they probably had this game in the bag. Mm-hmm. But then it went to the bottom of the inning. The Mets tied it up. So now it's five to five. And then the batter, Mookie Wilson, uh, hit a ground ball, which just kind of hopped right over to first base where first baseman Bill Buckner should have been an easy catch, but it rolled right between his legs. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> this allowed Roy Knight to score from second base, which tied the series at three games for each team. And then after taking an early lead in game seven, the Red Sox lost eight to five. Oh. So Bill Buckner was sort of the most hated man in Boston for a while. <laughs> mm. Here's what he said 19 days before this game. Mm-hmm. He said, well, the dreams are that you're going to have a great series and win. The nightmares are that you're going to let the winning run score on a ground ball through your legs. Those (gasps) things happen, you know. I think a lot of it is just fate. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) That Uh, was just him, like, nudging the cosmic. Yeah, just just taunting the baseball. (laughs) He he has since been kind of forgiven by Boston, sort of accepted back into the fold. He was a very popular player for Boston. It was just this Mm -hmm. one play that has kind of been his legacy. And Um, what year did this take place? 1986. I mean, thank God it was before the internet. Yeah. (laughs) Well, but it's all over. It's all over YouTube. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, no, I'm thinking of the... What, no what tweet was, storms. Can, well, yeah, but y- yes. And you know the... I don't remember what game it was. I don't even... I don't know what teams were playing, but it was the guy who reached into the field to catch. Oh, that was with the Cubs. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, fan. like... He was a Cubs fan. He ended up, like, having to go into hiding. I think yes. he became suicidal. Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of that. Like, yes, the footage is everywhere, but at the time... It's not like people could be like, it's just not as bad as it would have been today. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing is, if you know anything about Boston sports fans, Mm -hmm. they're not fun people. I bet. Yeah. I'll I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but they take it real seriously. Mm -hmm. So Bill Buckner, he was, he was persona non grata for a while there in Boston, but he has since been kind of accepted back in years later. He said in an ESPN interview, he says, I've come to the understanding that it's here to stay. So I try to look at it in a positive way. Everybody still remembers me. They say, yeah, he was the guy that made the error, but he was a pretty good player. So I guess that is a positive about it. Oh my God. 
And then he actually famously in 2011 poked fun at himself on an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm uh-huh. where like a woman is like trapped in a burning building and she throws her baby out the window and Bill Buckner <laughs> catches the baby. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty funny. Okay, good. So he had a good sense of humor about it. He has since passed away. Um, but the Red Sox ultimately broke the curse in 2004. Just a little bit about my personal experience with this World Series, because I was living in Boston at the time. Uh-huh. And I'm, I've never been a Red Sox fan, but I've always had a little bit of affection for them, you mm-hmm. know, kind of like storied team but like living in boston kind of ruined any affection i ever had for the red uh-huh. Sox. <laughs> but i remember like going in before the world series they were in the playoff series against the yankees and of course red sox yankees rivalry mm-hmm. like people have been literally killed over this rivalry jesus yeah, yeah it's kind of like cleveland browns and pittsburgh steelers rivalry is kind of the same way okay um but i just remember like they're playing the yankees in the playoffs and they had lost three games in a row and it was a it was like a best of four playoff series and i just remember that third game just the mood in the city just Ooh. felt apocalyptic <laughs> Like, (laughs) and I remember walking home and I knew the game was on and I walked past a sports bar Uh and I looked in the window and I saw like the TV over the the bar and it showed the score and it was like Red Sox down by whatever. And there were a bunch of like Boston dudes out front just smoking and glowering. (laughs) And then they went back inside and I'm kind of watching the game through the window. And then very quietly, as it was very clear that the game was like lost, I saw this guy sneak out of the bar wearing a Yankees jersey and just like hurry away. <laughs> oh, but he's like, Bye. it was like, read the room. <laughs> yeah. He was like, I'm trying to. Yeah. But then it's still considered one of the greatest turnarounds in baseball history. They lost three games, but then won four and ended up winning that playoff series and then swept the Cardinals. Um, in the World Series. And I just remember the city exploded. I feel Joyously, but frighteningly exploded. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I feel, and this is like no shade to Bostonians because I like mad respect, but I feel like Bostonians are kind of looking for any reason to just lose it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like my- to go berserk and like good or bad, like we lost yeah. this thing and like, we're going to tear the city down, but also we won this thing and, and we're going to tear, tear the city down. Or it's like St. Patrick's day and we're going to tear the city yeah. down. I mean, it, it is, it, it, that is true. Having lived there, that is, that is sort of a part of it. Like they're know? just like, yeah, all the time. <laughs> well, in, in that, like, look, I hate the Yankees as much as any other baseball fan, <laughs> <laughs> but that Red Sox Yankees rivalry, it's to a point of like, this is insanity. I remember. So after they won that final game against the Cardinals, mm-hmm. me and a friend of mine were like, let's go celebrate. Like, I didn't care particularly about the Red Sox, but I was happy. I'm living in Boston. It's an exciting moment. We're like, yeah. let's go to a bar and just be part of the celebration. We didn't last long because it was like a little scary out on the street. And then I remember watching the news again on the TV in the bar. Yeah. It was on mute, but it was, they were showing footage of two women fighting, one wearing a Red Sox <laughs> jersey, one wearing a Yankees jersey. Uh-huh. And the one wearing the Red Sox jersey literally slamming the head of the woman wearing the Yankees jersey into a car. Like, Jesus. <laughs> that might have actually been after they won the, the Yankees playoff series, but it was uh it was intense. 
Yeah. But then I remember the next day, like newspaper articles about like, if you went to the cemeteries in Boston, everyone's grandfather's grave had a Red Sox championship pennant on it because, you know, their grandfather had been waiting and never got to see them win. And come on. So, you know, it kind of (laughs) goes, kind of goes both ways. I did, uh, I did a trip with my family. We did like, we did like an America trip in 2010. And we went to DC and then we went to Boston. And while we were in Boston, we went to, so it's Fenway Park in Boston, yeah. right? Um, and we went there, we visited and and I bought this like adorable little Red Sox shirt because, and it, like Scotty knows this about me, but listeners, if you don't, I, I could not care less yeah. about sports. Yeah. Um, my, my level of caring is as low as it could possibly be, but it was a cute t-shirt. And I was like, oh, this would be like a cute little souvenir for my trip. And I got this Boston uh, Red Sox shirt. And I was wearing it in rehearsal and I have a, a, a dear friend, Scotty knows this guy as well, who is, is a New Yorker by birth. And <laughs> I wore that shirt in rehearsal and he was like, what the fuck is that? And I was like, I don't care. Yeah. And he was like, I'm going to rip that shirt off of your back. And I was like, I don't care yeah. about this. And he was like, you need to take that shirt and burn it. And I was like, I'm not it's a t-shirt. Yeah. I'm literally just wearing this so got, as not to be naked in rehearsal. Please I got, relax. I got hassled on the subway in Boston wearing a Cleveland shirt by a bunch of Red Sox fans. And it's like, wow. guys, we're, not, we're barely even rivals. Like, yeah. you always beat us. Why are you mad? You yeah. Know? I have but a yeah, brother. They take it real. They take it real it's, serious. It's always interesting to see. And I'm going to, I'm going to make an amendment to this in just a moment, but it's interesting to see the things that like cities and states take pride in. One of my brothers lives outside of Detroit and drives a Toyota and it is interesting to see yeah. uh, the, oh yeah. Toyota the, in Detroit. Mm-hmm, I could... mm-hmm, the animosity that yeah. he gets and <laughs> like, you know, people are like flipping him off on, and he just waves. He's like, have yeah. a good day. I mean, what can you do? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I was going, my amendment to that is that it makes me laugh. However, I will fight anybody who says that anybody makes better green chili than the state of New Mexico. Oh yeah. The whole like, like Colorado. Green yeah. Chili. I'm sorry, Colorado. Like, I love your state. I think you guys are cool. You but cannot. No. no. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. no, it's not yeah. even a competition. <laughs> like you guys should just go home. Yeah. Okay. Please continue. Don't let anyone say that it's just a game For I've seen other teams and it's never the same When you're born in Chicago, you're blessed and you're healed The first time you walk into Wrigley All right, we're moving on. So now we're going to talk about the curse of the Billy Goat. This is the other probably most famous baseball curse. Okay. This is the curse that has afflicted the Chicago Cubs. Mm. Um, so the curse was supposedly placed on the Cubs in 1945 by a guy named William Cianus. He was the owner of the Billy Goat Tavern in Chicago. So Cianus, he was a Greek immigrant. Okay. Uh, born in 1895, I believe. He came to the U.S. in 1912, where he taught himself how to speak English by reading local newspapers. And then immediately following the repeal of Prohibition, he bought the Lincoln Tavern, 
which was a bar that was basically right across the street from what at the time was called Chicago Stadium. I believe I believe Chicago Stadium was later renamed Wrigley Field. Um, okay. But or it was like torn down and then they built Wrigley Field. I'm not entirely sure of that history. But anyway, okay. he had a pet goat uh, <laughs> named Murphy and he used to okay. take it to Cubs games. So the story goes that he got Murphy after the baby goat fell out of a truck just outside oh. of the bar. Okay. And also that he's just like, this is my goat and now I take it places. Yeah. So supposedly, supposedly the goat fell out of the truck. He okay. nursed it back to health and then he grew himself a goatee. Yeah, and renamed his bar the Billy Goat Tavern. (laughs) Okay. Now he was known locally for these like marketing stunts to like bring like attention to his bar. Mm -hmm. So like one of these stunts was in 1944, Chicago hosted the Republican National Convention. So Cianis posted a sign in the window saying, No Republicans served here. Um, what this did is it caused a bunch of angry Republicans to go inside the bar where he was like, here, have some drinks. Because <laughs> they went in to like confront him and like yell at him. And he's like, here, have a, here, here, have a cold, have drink. a beverage, yeah. sit down, please. Welcome. Yeah. So he was known for stuff like that. So the goat was like, and like this whole, like a fell off of a truck thing. I'm not sure. I believe it. I think he probably bought a goat. Yeah. Was like, this will be a good marketing ploy. Right. Thing. Yeah. Well, he would take it to Cubs games. Okay. 1945, the Chicago Cubs were playing in the World Series against the Detroit Tigers. During game four, Sienis bought two box seats, uh, one for him and one for his goat. There was, I think, like a bit of a rain delay. So they allowed him to like parade the goat all around the infield during like the pregame. <laughs> okay. And the goat was wearing like a sign that said, we got Detroit's goat. Okay. <laughs> and then the game started and fans started complaining about the goat. Okay. Uh, the ushers tried to kick Sienis out, but he fought back. And he said, I paid for my two tickets, so my goat should be allowed to stay. And so the ushers were like, um, okay. Why? I wonder why people were complaining about the goat. Okay. Well, I'll get there. I'm okay. not sure what the initial complaints were. But anyway, so the ushers left him alone until inning four when another fan complained specifically about the goat's smell. So the ushers came, they demanded that Sienis leave. Okay. At the time, the Cubs were ahead in the series. They had won mm-hmm. two out of the first three games. It's not really clear what happened. Supposedly, when he got kicked out, Sienis, like infuriated at the disrespect shown to his goat, said, mm-hmm. Them Cubs, they ain't gonna win no more. Um Ooh. Now, it was reported in the Chicago Sun the next day that he was turned away at the gate uh, because he brought his goat. But all the news report said is that he just tied the goat up to a post and then went in and watched the game. So this does feel like one of those like urban legendy game of telephone kind of stories. Right. Now, some believe he was saying that the Cubs would never win another World Series at Wrigley Field. Others believe that he meant they would never even appear in another World Series. Okay. According to Sienis' own family, he actually sent a telegram to the Cubs owner, Philip K. Wrigley, the next day, uh-huh. saying that the Cubs would lose the 1945 series and would never win another. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So before 1945, the Cubs, they had they had won two World Series, one in 1907 and 1908, but then they'd been in this drought already up to 1945, but they'd been in a few World Series, at least. They, they had won the pennant six times. Uh, between mm-hmm. 1908 and 1945, but it never actually won the series. Mm. Um, their most famous loss during this time was, of course, the 1932 series against the New York Yankees when okay. Babe Ruth fam- 
famously, quote, called his shot. So this is one of those famous Babe Ruth moments where he pointed toward the center field with his bat uh-huh. uh, and then managed to hit a 500-foot home run Jesus. past center field, past the flagpole, out into the street outside the stadium. Wow. Well, the Tigers won game four of this 1945 series. So this is the one that he was supposedly thrown out of. Mm-hmm. That meant you know they were tied up now two to two, and then they went on to win game five and game seven. Of the series. So they ended up winning the World Series. After 1945, the Cubs did not even play in another World Series for 71 years. Wow. Apparently regretting the curse, uh, Sionis <laughs> publicly rescinded it. Now, I saw a couple dates. One was that he rescinded it in 1969. One, that he rescinded it in 1979. Okay. I also saw that he passed away in 1970. So I'm going to say he rescinded it in 1969. Let's just Okay. Okay. His nephew actually repeatedly tried to reverse the curse by bringing another goat to Wrigley Field in 1979, <laughs> 1984, <laughs> 1989, <laughs> 1994, and 1998. Uh, the Cubs finally broke the curse in 2016 when they won the National League pennant against the hated LA Dodgers. Mm. Um, and then they beat the Cleveland Indians in Game 7 of that World Series. Okay. It had been 108 years since their last World Series win. Which made it by far the longest World Series drought in baseball history. Now we're going to move on to the curse that's the nearest and dearest to my heart. Okay. This is the curse of Rocky Colavito. Okay. Afflicts the Cleveland Indians. Now, Um, let me want to preface this by saying, yes, I'm a Cleveland Indians fan. I have been my whole life. My dad's- What? Just kidding. (laughs) I understand that the name of the team is problematic. Mm -hmm. I eagerly anticipate them changing the name. They have announced that they are going to change the team name. Mm-hmm. It was originally supposed to be this year. 2021 was supposed to be the last year they were going to play under the name of the Cleveland Indians mm-hmm. um, and that they were supposed to change the name for next season. Now they're saying 2023, maybe. I'm not sure what the holdup is. From what I've read, it has to do with like licensing deals and legal stuff and whatnot. But they are planning to retire okay. the name Cleveland Indians. Okay. They've already retired the Chief Wahoo mm-hmm. uh, logo caricature mm-hmm. very racist caricature yes <laughs> they've already gotten rid of that so i just wanted before i go into this story i just want to stipulate that like right. yes i'm a fan yes um, you acknowledge i am very much one of the people who supports changing the name so awesome okay so the cleveland indians were established in 1901 they won two world series championships in 1920 and 1948 from 1948 to 1960 even though they didn't win a world series they were a very good team there was only one season 1957 where they played below 500 for the season which means like you know below winning at least half of their games okay well the curse begins in 1960 when cleveland traded outfielder and six season all-star hitter rocky colavito to the detroit tigers for shortstop Harry Kuhn. Okay. Now this trade was like very unpopular with Cleveland fans because in the previous season, Colavito had been the American League's home run champion. He'd won, he'd hit 
42 home runs. But it, on, at least on paper, it was not a bad trade because even though he wasn't the home run champion, Kuhn was the overall American League batting champion. He had hit mm. a 353 batting average that year. So, oh you know, wasn't like a bad trade, but this is on the heels of like a lot of trades from uh, Cleveland manager Frank Lane. Lane had become manager only two years earlier. Cleveland had been a very successful team. And then Lane just sort of went about like gutting the team. Like getting rid of every inherited player that he had. Okay. It's not entirely clear what drove this Rocky Colavito trade, but it probably boils down to money. The idea of the curse was popularized later by a sports writer named Terry Pluto. He had covered Cleveland for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And he wrote a book in 1994 called The Curse of Rocky Colavito, A Loving Look at a 33-Year Slump. Mm. He kind of asserted that Lane had made the trade to blunt Colavito's popularity and punish him for what he saw as exorbitant salary demands. So this is from one of his Plain Dealer articles. He says, in 1958, Colavito batted 303 with 41 homers and 113 RBIs. That earned him a $28,000 salary in 1959 when he he delivered a league-leading 42 homers and 111 RBIs. Lane dwelled on Colavito's 257 batting average in 1959 in his 86 strikeouts, insisting that Colavito didn't deserve a raise. Mm. So the negotiations got bitter. This is kind of before baseball players or athletes had agents. Colavito ultimately did get a $7,000 raise, but then was almost immediately traded. Um, He had been determined to help Cleveland win the pennant in 1960, but they kind of like almost did a sneaky trade. Uh, They didn't Mm. even tell him this was happening. So this is also from this Terry Pluto. He says, uh, Rocky Colavito learned the Indians had traded him while standing on first base. It was April 17th, 1960, two days before the Indians were to open the regular season at home against Detroit. And then quote from Colavito, he says, we were playing an exhibition game in Memphis. Manager Joe Gordon came out of the dugout, came right up to me and said, that's the last time you'll ever bat for the Indians. You've been traded to Detroit for Harvey Kuhn. Then he took me out of the game. So just very unceremoniously like dumped him. Now, this is from the Hardball Times article. It says, to be sure, neither Pluto nor anyone else actually believes in any manner of curse caused by the fateful Colavito trade. But it Mm -hmm. certainly is the case that if one could pinpoint an exact spot, a moment at which the Cleveland franchise stopped being a perennial American League contender and started being a perennial American League afterthought, it was that one. So after the trade... Cleveland entered a 33-season stretch where they didn't get within 11 games of first place. And remember, they had not had a below 500 season for, like, years, for Mm -hmm. 12 years or something. Then they did 33 years where they didn't get within 11 games of first place. Didn't win a pennant at all between 1954 and 1994. Now, they ultimately did get Colavito back in 1965. At this point, he was playing for Kansas City. They did another trade. They got him back, but then they lost their pitcher, Tommy John, and outfielder, Tony Aggie, to the White Sox. Tommy John had been a lackluster pitcher for Cleveland, but after he went to the White Sox, he went on to win 286 games with both the LA Dodgers and the New York Yankees. Aggie was a prospect when he was traded, but then went on to win Rookie of the Year the following year and helped the Mets in their 1969 championship season rocky calavito for his part didn't really help the indians very much 
when he came back. So okay. other evidence for the curse in 1964, a pitcher named Jim Mudcat Grant was traded to the Twins. He went on to win 78 more games and helped the Twins win their first pennant in 1965. This one's kind of sad. Star pitcher Sam McDowell descended into alcoholism in the 1960s. Uh, um, he ultimately had to retire at the age of 32. Now he did. Yeah, he was young and he was like a star pitcher. He was like one of the big name pitchers, but you know, he just kind of lost it. He did eventually get sober and actually became a sober life counselor to other athletes later in his life. Yeah. That's lovely. This is another sad story. First baseman power hitter Tony Horton was beset by mental illness. So he was, again, one of the big stars for the team. But in 1970, he entered a slump. Mm. Cleveland fans kind of turned on him. So during a game on July 2nd, 1970, the constant booing by the fans drove him into a deep depression and he attempted suicide that night. Oh my God. No, he, he was treated and recovered. He was okay. only, I think, 25 years old at the time. <sighs> He never again played baseball. In 1976, pitcher Wayne Garland entered free agency after he won 20 games for the Orioles and lost only seven. So he was like, hot prospect, Wayne Mm -hmm. Garland. So Cleveland was like, let's snatch this guy up. They signed a $2.3 million 10-year contract with him. He showed up to spring training where he immediately injured his right shoulder. Mm. Rather than actually get it treated, he tried to pitch through the pain instead of going to surgery. Ended up winning only 13 games, lost 19. Oh, shit. That year. He ended up retiring in 1980. So not such a great deal then. Yeah. This one, I'm going to post this picture on social media because it's just, it's amazing, like the hubris of it. Okay. There's an infamous Sports Illustrated cover for their 1987 baseball preview issue. Okay. The headline was Indian Uprising. Yeah, the face you're making is appropriate. Um, yeah, it, for everybody who can't see me, I, I cringed real hard. Like cringed so hard, I thought your face might actually collapse in on itself. Like yeah, a like my my, my molars shattered. I cringed so yeah. hard. Ooh, um, yeah. So it's the infamous Indian Uprising cover. This was coming after their 1986 season where they had like a surprisingly great season. They had won Mm -hmm. 84 games and were kind of seen as like the team to beat for 1987. So the cover featured star hitters Joe Carter and Corey Snyder and had the sub headline, Believe It! Cleveland is the best team in the American League. Well, in 1987, they ended up losing 101 games and had the worst record in baseball. Yeah. Another sad one, 1993, a boating accident during spring training killed relief pitchers Steve Olin and Tim Cruz. Also severely injured and almost killed starting pitcher Bob Ojeda. And then relief pitcher Kevin Wickender was just so grief stricken at the loss of his friends that he just kind of lost his game. Um, He was never an effective pitcher again. He ended up being traded midseason. So they, in essence, lost four pitchers. Wow with that accident now colavita for his part has denied that he ever placed a curse on the team other people have blamed former manager bob bragan for the curse rather than mm-hmm. rocky colavito so the story is that after he was fired in 1958 he walked out to the pitcher's mound and placed a curse saying that they would never win another series mm-hmm. he's also denied ever doing that <laughs> cleveland has not won a world series since 1948 up to this day at 72 seasons now it is currently the longest world series drought in baseball 
Okay. And as a Cleveland fan, it is real frustrating uh-huh. because it's not like Cle- Cleveland, they're not one of those teams. I'm going to just name drop a couple shitty teams or teams that I think are shitty, like the Kansas uh, City Royals or, you know, okay. where it's like you don't expect them to win because they're never good. You know, right. they're usually at the bottom. You know, the Colorado Rockies are like always kind of bottom of their division. Mm-hmm. Cleveland's always at the top or near the top. Like right now, they're second. They're right behind the White Sox. Ooh. What happens with Cleveland? Cleveland seems like every year is they have a slow start. They pick up mid season, like have a rally, uh-huh. they get into the playoffs and then it just turns into the Keystone cops. Like I've seen some of like the best players in baseball go into a playoff series or world series and just start pitching like the crappiest minor league like, little league, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's real. It's just like, what's going on guys. Yeah. So the whole idea of curses in baseball, it's, like pretty silly but like where does this come from where do these droughts come from right it's pretty unclear a lot of it's just luck of the draw a lot okay. of it's like coincidence like you know going back to the babe ruth thing yeah babe ruth was a solid player but he wasn't the legend that it wasn't like this harry Frazee was like let's take the greatest player who will ever be known in the sport and get rid of him it was mm-hmm. just like eh he's good. He might be losing his stuff. Let's, you know, it's always sort of luck of the draw. You sell right. his contract in New York. You don't expect him to become the powerhouse that he became, you know? Right. With Cleveland, it's like very clear, just like bad management, bad trading decisions, you know? So it's like, you know, do we want to blame the Billy goat? I mean, that's a lot of fun, um, <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I'm to put these curses on the believability scale, like pretty low. Yeah, that's a lot. And this and this is like you said that this is not like a comprehensive list, right? No, these are the most famous ones. Wow. For sure. I mean, the bobblehead curse was one I had heard of. I didn't know much about it. And when you read up on it, it's like it's real silly. But then you look at the stats and it's like, oh, yeah, no, all of these (sighs) all of these players did like fall apart immediately after they got their bobblehead. That's so weird. So that's so weird. Yeah. So that is the story of baseball curses. Um, Nice. So I am going to do a few more baseball stories. Uh, Like like we said, we're off next week, but I think Mm -hmm. I'm going to follow it up with the Black Sox scandal. Oh, okay. uh, From the Chicago White Sox. Okay. And then I think I want to do something about the history of the Negro Leagues. Okay. uh, Because that's something that's just not talked about enough. Right, 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 right. Very cool. What's your favorite baseball movie? Well, I mean, I have to say Major League because it's about the Cleveland Indians. Okay. That's the one that's the most fun, I think. Okay. Mm -hmm. It is. Major League is a a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one that gets me in the feels the most. Mm -hmm. I mean, The Natural with Robert Redford's great. I Um, have not seen that movie. It's it's a really great movie. But the the one that gets me in the feels is Field of Dreams. I mean, you can't, which I'm going to reference when I talk about the Black Sox, because it's God. part of the story of Field of Dreams. Ugh, just, uh, I, I love Ray Liotta in that movie so much. Doulis Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, like, when, I don't remember who he's talking about, but he's saying that they're not going to let somebody play with him because he's a real like asshole or something. And, and oh, he's yeah, like, ah, <laughs> like he's cracking up because he's like, yeah. fuck that guy. Um, yeah. yeah, I, that's. Field of Dreams is a great movie. I yeah. am a big fan of Moneyball. Not going to lie. Well, Moneyball, like if you really want to like understand something, like Field of Dreams is great just about like baseball. America's favorite pastime. Yeah. Well, baseball. It's like baseball. 
like baseball is a little weird. Like, I mean, you, you touch on it in your story. Mm-hmm. Baseball is like such an old sport mm-hmm. and it was a segregated sport. Like there's a lot of problematic history with baseball, mm-hmm. but there, there's these like great moments and like, mm-hmm. there's something that's just like perfectly Americana about baseball. Yeah. And, like yeah. field of dreams really captures that Moneyball really is like, this is how the game fucking works in the modern day. Yeah. Um, yeah. The book Moneyball is also great. Oh, right. Yeah. right. I always forget it's based on a book. Yeah. Yeah. I really love, I think Scotty knows this about me. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's been mentioned uh, on the podcast before, but I'm a fucking sucker for like feel good sports movies. So field of dreams. I, like I said, I really love Moneyball, Miracle, which is not baseball, but it's about the hockey team. Like, yeah. Ugh. And it's just a great sport. <laughs> I mean, Rudy is about football, but it's a pretty great movie. Yeah, that's uh, why I love Friday Night Lights so much. But oh, like, yeah. I'm like, I'm not into like any given Sunday. I had, I was, I was talking about this with an ex boyfriend, and he was actually the one because I, I was mentioning a bunch of sports movies, and he was like, "But you're not into sports," and I was like, "No, like not at all." And he was like, "But you love feel good sports movies." Mm-hmm. And I, it hadn't occurred to me before then that I was like, oh, should I actually do? And he was like, God, you must be like nuts about Hoosiers. And I was like, I've never seen Hoosiers. And he was like, movie. what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it. Um, I believe Amazon Prime is going to be releasing. I don't know if it's a limited series or if it's just a, if it's a full series about Maradona, who was the Argentinian soccer player. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But just like a, a, I think I've seen that. Uh, yeah, just like advertise. a fucking Nova within the soccer world. And I'm like, I cannot wait. I'm so excited for it. Yeah. No, I love a good feel good sports movie. And like, I'm not League of Their like, Own. God, League of Their Own. Actually, League of Their Own. I mean, that is up there with Field of Dreams and it's great. Major League for me. Yeah. Ugh. Well, and it's like, just like I'm with you in that I am not a sports fan in general. I really don't care about basketball, football, mm-hmm. hockey. Mm-hmm. I kind of have respect for soccer, I think, because it's so international Oof. and like everyone around the world loves it so much. Mm-hmm. But like there's something about baseball and I have this argument with people. I'm just going to make my little little pitch about why you should be a baseball fan. Uh, like me specifically well, or like people globally in people. OK, <laughs> people who like want to write off baseball is like, oh, it's so boring. You uh-huh. know? Here's why I find baseball. I think it's the writer in me. Like baseball to me is the most narrative sport. It's the most like built around characters and suspense. Cause like mm-hmm. if you watch, like, I mean, I'll, I'll just use hockey. Cause hockey is one of those sports that I watch. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. It's just zip, zip, just zip, zip, zip. Fighting. You know? Yeah. Baseball. Is is sorry sidebar is it in the west wing yeah where hoynes is doing the commentary about hockey he's just like even the announcers are surprised when they score yeah Yeah, and that's how i feel i mean that's kind of how i feel about basketball and uh to a degree soccer because these games they move so fast but i just have a hard time kind of following the action what i love about baseball is it's to me baseball is the sports equivalent of like a hitchcock movie because it's all about suspense. It's all yeah. about that like stare down between the pitcher and the batter. Yeah. And like, you know, you see the pitcher like planning his strategy of like, okay, how am I going to pitch past this guy? You know, mm-hmm. and you see the like signals from the catcher and the pitcher saying no. And then finally nodding. You're like, what's he going to pitch? What's he going to pitch? Right. And then it's like that, that moment of like, is it going to work or is it going to not? It's it's really about the, like the pitcher, the protagonist versus the batter, the antagonist, you know? Yeah. 
So in that sense, it's, I like the slow pace of baseball because mm, you know? mm-hmm. it's about the story for me as much right. as it is about like the game. Right. Know? Yeah. Um, and I've just, I've always, like, I grew up not in a sports family at all. You know, my dad's from Cleveland. He doesn't yeah. care about, he doesn't care about the Indians, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> somehow I just, when I was a kid, I adopted them and like yeah. I stuck with them even through the controversies around the name. I was real happy when they announced they were changing the name. Yeah. And it, it is one of those things that's like kind of controversial with Cleveland fans. Like if mm-hmm. you go on social media, you get the outrage from both sides. But when you kind of dig a little deeper, I think it seems like people are kind of like, yeah, it's time. And like, like, let's get rid of this baggage of this dragging this name behind us. That, yeah. You know, yeah. These problems, you know? Yeah. Um, and if anyone from like Cleveland sports, I don't know, big wig listens to the podcast, I'm just going to put my vote out there for Cleveland rock stars, I think should be the name. Oh yeah. Do they have the options for what they're looking at? I They haven't announced any yet, but they're okay. Like, seems like the prevailing idea is something tying to Cleveland's rock and roll history. You know, mm-hmm. you know that's where the term rock and roll was coined. It's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is based right. in Cleveland. Right. Um, that's where I go with like either the Cleveland Rockers or the Cleveland Rock Stars. Uh, mm-hmm. Another thing that I could get behind is going back to some of the unfortunately forgotten Negro League teams from Cleveland. So like the Cleveland Spiders is oh. one of the fa- one of the fan favorites right now. Okay. So Spiders. you know, interesting. Yeah. I, I I have a harder time with that because I'm arachnophobic. So like, <laughs> yeah, you're like I can't. I won't be able to buy yeah. the merchandise. I mean, I'll I'll find a way to get past it. But <laughs> I do appreciate you know uh, Albuquerque has had two minor league right baseball yeah. teams in our history, uh, and the first were the Dukes. And it like there's you know it's it might not be as outwardly as the- maybe as like outwardly obviously problematic, but right. it, it is a little bit if you know. Well, the history yeah. of how New Mexico was colonized and and all that. And obviously, but that God bless the merchandise was fucking cool. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with the Dukes, you know, because obviously Albuquerque's, you know, Duke City. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's even in the name of your theater company. It is indeed. But of course, it's named after the Duke of Albuquerque, and it's mm-hmm. and I think the who I don't actually think was a conquistador, but it was like named in his honor by. Some no, but that's the thing is that like the mascot for the Dukes was a fucking conquistador. That, like. That's I was gonna. That's what I was gonna say is like I think the name Albuquerque Dukes is probably less problematic than the mascot, which is like. The reverse of the Cleveland Indians mascot. Right. You had this like really offensive racist mascot for the Indians. And then like the happy conquistador for the cutest. Yeah. The cutest little uh, conquistador from, from the Dukes, but yeah, Yeah. the, the, the merchandising and you can still find places that sort of are doing like reissues of sort of vintage retro Dukes merchandise. uh, And it is very cool. And then our current team is the isotopes, which is, Borrowed from the Simpsons, but, yep. you know, is tied to our, our history with nuclear history and, and all that. Yeah. And I think that's pretty cool. I am not going to lie. I've been to a couple of Isotopes games. I've been to one with you. Yes. And my favorite, absolute favorite part of going to an Isotopes game is when they do in between the innings. They have green chili, red chili, and salsa <laughs> race. Yeah. Which is the most New Mexico thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is another thing. There are a couple of things and I still, to this day, I'm trying to figure out why they make me laugh so hard. 
but people running in mascot uniforms. And it's never like, because what is his name? The actual Isotopes mascot. I can never remember it. But it has something to do with, yeah. it's it's not like fusion, but it is something to do. It's like something do. like that. It's like yeah. tied to that. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like this weird sort of like bear science hybrid monster type of thing. But the red chili, green chili, and salsa is just like the suit that goes over them with just their legs sticking out. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It, like few things bring me as much joy as watching red chili, green chili, and salsa race. And I think there might be a taco as well. I don't know. It is so, it brings me so much joy. I I can't, I can't contain it. So the Isotopes mascot is Orbit. Orbit. Yeah. We should should post a picture of Orbit on uh, our social media. And I'm just. I'm just going to say it right now. I think now that things are opening up, uh, we should go catch an Isotopes game. This we season. need to go catch an Isotopes game. We also need to go support New Mexico United. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd be all about that too. Yeah. I understand there are a lot of people that are like, ugh, soccer. Um, I'm just saying, soccer players have some hot bodies. I mean, I'm not trying to objectify <laughs> anybody. And I mean this across all genders of people who play yeah. soccer, but ooh, they got some hot bodies. Yeah. And I will say like baseball players often don't. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and not that that's a reason that you should watch sports or not watch sports, but, um, but one of the things I also just love, and I, I know it's a thing that frustrates non-soccer fans, but I love the drama in soccer. I uh-huh. love that somebody will get like brushed, you know, with like an elbow and they're like, ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I, and it's also, you know, being my, you know, being that my parents immigrated to this country from Bolivia and, you know, obviously as Latin Americans, we have a deep connection to soccer. I grew like, I grew up watching a lot of world cups. And so there's a lot of like, yeah. you know, like emotional connection to the game, even though I don't necessarily like watching I- the game but the drama is always I can, uh, like I said I entertaining think I enjoy watching baseball more than any sport I can enjoy I think soccer is probably like would be next on my list my thing mm-hmm. is like I don't follow it very closely and like soccer basketball and hockey all seem similar to me and like I don't understand what all the different player positions are so i'm never sure who's supposed to do what because there's so right. many people like even football i at least kind of understand okay who the quarterback is who the running mm-hmm. backs are who you know the all that my problem with football is it's just like a bunch of dudes standing around and then they crash into each other for a little bit and then they stand around for a while then they crash into each other a little bit and it's just yeah. for me like when everyone's like go oh, baseball's so boring i'm like have you really watched a football game my like, god <laughs> I have watched football games and I'm like, this is enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and again, not going to lie, like I am much more interested in watching the Latin American and the African teams play yeah. than I am the European teams. Like I'm not, you know, like I'm, Manchester I'm, United or something. No. And in the world cup, like in my, in the world cup, it goes, our first loyalty obviously is to Bolivia, but they never do very well. In the world <laughs> cup. And then, you know, it spreads out to the Latin American countries. And if Latin American countries get, you know, like if they are put out of the running, then I think we usually go to the African teams. And if there are none of those, we will support Spain. But like, I mean, you know, there's been plenty of times. Yeah. Where it's been like Germany. Germany and France or something. And we're like, 
fuck this, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it is, it's, it's, you know, like my parents invite all their friends over. My mom does like a saltanada, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of like food and family and yeah, you know, that well, kind of thing. So I just have an emotional connection to it. And back just real quick, back to baseball speaking internationally, like yeah. I have, I have not had a chance to watch cause you know, obviously baseball is also very popular throughout Latin America. And, mm-hmm. I mean, we have major league baseball is like full, full. of latin american mm-hmm. players but unfortunately i haven't had a chance to watch any of those leagues but i have watched japan league baseball yeah. that's a lot of fun yeah japan league baseball is a lot of fun because it's very similar but it almost has like a throwback baseball feel like mm. you know and i'm obviously not an expert on it but it seems like so much of like american baseball has it's kind of moved a little bit away from this, but there was kind of in the 90s, early 2000s, it was just the home run race, you know? It was all just about hitting home runs, hitting home runs, which gets really boring after a while. Yeah. There's something about, at least from what I've seen of Japanese league baseball, that is more like classic baseball. It's like getting singles and doubles, stealing bases, you know? It's like that yeah. infield strategy play kind of, yeah. which is part of what I really love about baseball. So yeah. yeah, if you ever get a chance to watch any Japanese league baseball, uh, do yourself a favorites it's a lot of fun nice all right on that note cool baseball stories uh reminder again that we won't be here next week it's a bye week can i use that is that sports lingo i'm sure it's a bye week um (laughs) so we won't have an episode next week but we'll be back the week after with more baseball stories and who knows what i'll bring into the mix as always stay weird stay curious and we'll see you soon bye bye Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.